0: We believe that from a common zero point there will be all degrees of reward and all degrees of punishment and that a person's reward or punishment will, to a certain extent, be based on the opportunity that he has had in this world. Jesus himself declared that in the day of judgment it would be more tolerable for the heathen city of Sodom than for those cities of Palestine which had heard and rejected his message. Luke 10, verses 12-14. And he closed the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants with these words, And that servant who knew his Lord's will and made not ready, nor did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And to whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required." And to whom they commit much of him will they ask the more. Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. So while the heathens are lost, they shall suffer relatively less than those who have heard and rejected the gospel. Hence, in regard to this problem of the heathen races, Arminianisms are, at the very outset, involved in difficulties which subvert their whole scheme, difficulties from which They have never been able to extricate themselves. They admit that only in Christ is their salvation. Yet they see that multitudes die without ever having heard of Christ or the gospel. Holding that sufficient grace or opportunity must be given to every man before he can be condemned. Many of them have been led to postulate a future probation. This, however, is not only without Scripture support, but is contrary to Scripture. As Cunningham says, Calvinists have always regarded it as a strong argument against the Arminian doctrines of universal grace and universal redemption, and in favor of their own views of the sovereign purposes of God. That, in point, of fact, so large a portion of the human race have been always left in entire ignorance of God's mercy, and of the way of salvation revealed in the gospel. Nay, in such circumstances as to all appearances throw insuperable obstacles in the way of their attaining to that knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Only in Calvinism, with its doctrine of the guilt and corruption of all mankind through the fall, and its doctrine of grace through which Some are sovereignly rescued and brought to salvation while others are passed by do we find an adequate explanation of the phenomena of the heathen world. Purposes of the decree of reprobation The condition of the non-elect is designed primarily to furnish an eternal exhibition before men and angels of God's hatred of sin or, in other words, It is to be an eternal manifestation of the justice of God. Let it be remembered that God's justice certainly demands the punishment of sin as it demands the rewarding of righteousness. This decree displays one of the divine attributes which apart from it could never have been adequately appreciated. The salvation of some through a Redeemer is designed to display the attributes of love, mercy, and holiness. The attributes of wisdom, power, and sovereignty are displayed in the treatment accorded both groups. Hence the truth of the scripture statement that Jehovah hath made everything for its own end, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16.4 And also the statement of Paul when this arrangement was intended on the one hand to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which were afore prepared unto glory, and on the other to show his wrath and to make his power known upon vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction. Romans 9:22 and 23. This decree of reprobation also served subordinate purposes in regard to the elect, for in beholding the rejection and final state of the wicked, one, they learned that they too would have suffered had not grace stepped in to their relief and they appreciate more deeply the riches of divine love which raised them from sin and brought them into eternal life, while others, no more guilty or unworthy than they were, left to eternal destruction. 2. It furnishes a most powerful motive for thankfulness that they have received such high blessings. 3. They are led to a deeper trust of their Heavenly Father who supplies all their needs, in this life and the next. Four, the sense of what they have received furnishes the strongest possible motive for them to love their heavenly Father and to live as pure lives as possible. Five, it leads them to a greater abhorrence of sin. Six, it leads them to a closer walk with God and with each other as specially chosen heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Seven. In regard to the sovereign rejection of the Jews, Paul destroys at the source any accusation that they were cast off without reason. Did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. For by their fall salvation is come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Romans 11.11 Thus we see that God's rejection of the Jews was for a very wise and definite purpose namely that salvation might be given to the Gentiles and that in such a way that it would react for the salvation of the Jews themselves. Historically, we see that the Christian church has been almost exclusively a Gentile church, but in every age some Jews have been converted to Christianity and we believe that in time to come on a much larger number will be provoked to jealousy and cause to turn to God. Several verses in the 11th chapter of Romans indicate that considerable numbers are to be converted and that they will be extremely zealous for righteousness. Armenian center of attack on this doctrine. This doctrine of reprobation is one upon which the Armenians are very fond of dwelling. They often single it out and emphasize it as though it was the sum and substance of Calvinism while the other doctrines such as the sovereignty of God, the purely gracious character of election, the perseverance of the saints, etc., which give so much glory to God, are passed by with little or no comment. At the Synod of Dort, the Arminians insisted on first discussing the subject of reprobation, and complained of it as a great hardship when the Synod refused to concede this. To the present day they have generally pursued this same policy. Their object is plain, for they know that it is easy to misrepresent this doctrine, and to set it forth in a light that will prejudice men's feeling against it. They often distort the views which are held by Calvinists. Then after alleging all that they can against it, they argue that since there can be no such thing as reprobation, neither can there be any such thing as election." The unfair overemphasis on this doctrine indicates anything but an unprejudiced and sincere search for truth. Let them turn, rather, to the positive side of the system. Let them answer and dispose of the large amount of evidence which has been collected in favor of this system. On the other hand, Calvinists usually produce first the evidence in favor of the doctrine of election, and then having established this, they show that what they hold concerning the doctrine of reprobation naturally follows. They do not indeed regard the latter as wholly dependent on the former for its proof. They believe that it is sustained by independent scripture proof. Yet they do believe that if what they hold concerning the doctrine of election is proven true, then what they hold concerning the doctrine of reprobation will follow of logical necessity. Since the scriptures give us much fuller information about what God does in producing faith and repentance in those who are saved than they give us in regard to his procedure with those who continue in impenitent and unbelief, reason demands that we shall first investigate the doctrine of election and then consider the doctrine of reprobation. This last consideration shows the utter unfairness of armenians in giving such prominence to the doctrine of reprobation as has been said before this is admittedly an unpleasant doctrine calvinists do not shrink from discussing it yet naturally because of its awful character they find no satisfaction in dwelling upon it they also realize that here men must be particularly careful not to attempt to be wise above what is written as many are inclined to do when they indulge in presumptuous speculations about matters which are too high for them, under no obligation to explain all these things. Let it be remembered that we are under no obligation to explain all the mysteries connected with these doctrines. We are only under obligation to set forth what the Scriptures teach concerning them, and to vindicate this teaching so far as possible from the objections which are alleged against it. The yea, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in thy sight, Matthew 11.26 and Luke 10.21, was to our Lord in all-sufficient theosity in the face of all God's diverse dealings with men. The sufficient and only answer which Paul gives to vain reasoners who would penetrate more deeply into these mysteries is that they are to be resolved into the divine wisdom and sovereignty. The words of Top Lady are especially appropriate here. Say not, therefore, as the opposers of these doctrines did in St. Paul's day, Why doth God find fault with the wicked? For who hath resisted his will? If he who only can convert them refrains from doing it, what room is there for blaming them that perish, seeing it is impossible to resist the will of the Almighty? Be satisfied with St. Paul's answer. Nay. Nay. But, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? The apostle hinges the whole matter entirely on God's absolute sovereignty. There he rests it, and there we ought to leave it. Man cannot measure the justice of God by his own comprehension. And our modesty should be such that when the reason for some of God's works lies hidden, we nevertheless believe him to be just. If anyone thinks that this doctrine represents God as unjust, it is only because he does not realize what the scripture doctrine of original sin is, nor to what it commits him. Let him fix his mind upon the existence of real ill-desert, antecedent to actual sin, and the condemnation will appear just and natural. The first step mastered, the second presents no real difficulty. It is hard for us to realize that many of those right around us, in some cases our close friends and relatives, are probably foreordained to eternal punishment, and so far as we do realize it, we are inclined to have a certain sympathy for them. Yet when seen in the light of eternity, our sympathy for the lost would be found to have been an undeserved and a misplaced sympathy. Those who are finally lost shall then be seen as they really are, enemies of God, enemies of all righteousness, and lovers of sin, with no desire for salvation, or the presence of the Lord. We may add further that since God is perfectly just, none shall be sent to hell except those who deserve to go there. And when we see their real characters, we shall be fully satisfied with the disposition that God has made. As a matter of fact, the Armenians do not escape any real difficulty here. For since they admit that God has foreknowledge of all things, they must explain why he creates those who he foresees will lead sinful lives, reject the gospel, die impenitent, and suffer eternally in hell. The Armenians really have a more difficult problem here than do the Calvinists, for the Calvinists maintain that the ones whom God thus creates, knowing that they will be lost, are the non-elect, who voluntarily choose sin and in whose merited punishment God designs to manifest his justice. While the Armenians must say that God deliberately creates those who, he foresees, will be such poor, miserable creatures that, without serving any good purpose, they will bring destruction upon themselves and will spend eternity in hell, in spite of the fact that God himself earnestly wishes to bring them to heaven, and that God shall be forever grieved in seeing them where he wishes they were not, does not... This represents God as acting most foolishly in bringing upon himself such dissatisfaction and upon some of his creatures such misery when he could at least have refrained from creating those who he foresaw would be lost. Perhaps there are some who, upon hearing of this doctrine of predestination, will account themselves reprobate and will be inclined to go into further sin with the excuse that they are to be damned anyway but to do so is to suck poison out of a sweet flower, to dash oneself against the rock of ages. No one has the right to judge himself reprobate in this life, and hence to grow desperate, for final disobedience, the only infallible sign of reprobation, cannot be discovered until death. No unconverted person in this life knows for certain that God will not yet convert him and save him even though he is aware that no such change has yet taken place. Hence he has no right to number himself definitely among the non-elect. God has not told us who among the unconverted he has yet purposes to regenerate and to save. If any man feels the pangs of conscience working in him, these may be the very means which God is using to draw him. We have given considerable space to the discussion of the doctrine of reprobation, because it has been the great stumbling block for most of those who have rejected the Calvinistic system. We believe that if this doctrine can be shown to be scriptural and reasonable, the other parts of the system will be readily accepted. 6. Infra-Lapsarianism and supra Among those who call themselves Calvinists, there has been some difference of opinion as to the order of events in the divine plan. The question here is, when the decrees of election and reprobation came into existence, were men considered as fallen or as unfallen? Were the objects of those decrees contemplated as members of a sinful, corrupt mass, or were they contemplated merely as men whom God would create? According to the infralapsarian view, the order of events was as follows. God purposed 1. To create 2. To permit the fall 3. To elect to eternal life and blessedness a great multitude out of this mass of fallen men and to leave the others as he left the devil and the fallen angels to suffer the just punishment of their sins 4. To give his Son, Jesus Christ for the redemption of the elect and 5. To send the Holy Spirit To apply to the elect the redemption which was purchased by Christ. According to the superlapsarian view, the order of events was: one, to elect some creatable men, that is, men who were to be created, to life and to condemn others to destruction; two, to create; three, to permit the fall; four, to send Christ to redeem the elect; and five, to send the Holy Spirit to apply this redemption. The elect. The question then is as to whether election precedes or follows the fall. One of the leading motives in the superlapsarian scheme is to emphasize the idea of discrimination and to push this idea into the whole of God's dealings with men. We believe, however, that superlapsarianism overemphasizes this idea. In the very nature of the case, this idea cannot be consistently. Carried out, That is, in creation and especially in the fall. It was not merely some of the members of the human race who were objects of the decree to create, but all mankind, in that with the same nature. It was not merely some men, but the entire race which was permitted to fall. Superlapsarianism goes to as great an extent on the one side as does universalism on the other. Only the infralapsarian scheme is self-consistent or consistent with other facts. In regard to this difference, Dr. Warfield writes, the mere putting of the question seems to carry its answer with it. For the actual dealing with men which is in question is with respect to both classes alike, those who are elected and those who are passed by, conditioned on sin. We cannot speak of salvation any more than of reprobation without positing sin. Sin is necessarily preceded in thought, not indeed to the abstract idea of discrimination, but to the concrete instance of discrimination which is in question, a discrimination with regard to the destiny which involves either salvation or punishment. There must be sin in contemplation to ground a decree of salvation, as truly as a decree of punishment. We cannot speak of a decree discriminating between men with reference to salvation and punishment, therefore, without positing the contemplation of men as sinners, as its logical perius. And, to the same effect, Dr. Charles Hodge says, it is a clearly revealed scriptural principle that where there is no sin, there is no condemnation. He hath mercy upon one and not on another, according to his own good pleasure, because all are equally unworthy and guilty. Everywhere, as in Romans 1.24, 26, and 28, reprobation is declared to be judicial, founded upon the sinfulness of its object. Otherwise, it could not be a manifestation of the justice of God. It is not in harmony with Scripture ideas of God that innocent men, men who are not contemplated as sinners, should be foreordained to eternal misery and death. The decrees concerning the saved and the lost should not be looked upon as based merely on an abstract sovereignty. God is truly sovereign, but this sovereignty is not exercised in an arbitrary way. Rather, it is sovereignly exercised in harmony with his other attributes, especially his justice, holiness, and wisdom. God cannot permit sin, and in that respect he is limited, although it would be more accurate to speak of his inability to commit sin as a perfection. There is, of course, mystery in connection with either system, But the superlapsarian system seems to pass beyond mystery and into contradiction. The scriptures are particularly in Christians are said to have been chosen out of the world. John 15.19 The potter has a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel to honor and another unto dishonor. Romans 9.21 and the elect and the non-elect are regarded as being originally in a common state of misery. Suffering and death are uniformly represented as the wages of sin. The infralapsarian scheme naturally commends itself to our ideas of justice and mercy, and it is at least free from the Arminian objection that God simply creates men in order to damn them. Augustine and the great majority of those who have held the doctrine of election since that time have been and are infralapsarians. That is, they believe that it was from the mass of fallen men that some were elected to eternal life, while others were sentenced to eternal death for their sins. There is no Reformed confession that teaches the superlapsarian view, but on the other hand, a considerable number do explicitly teach the infralapsarian view, which thus emerges as the typical form of Calvinism. At the present day it is probably safe to say that not more than one Calvinist in a hundred holds the superlapsarian view. We are Calvinists strongly enough, but not high Calvinists. By a high Calvinist we mean one who holds the superlapsarian view. It is of course true that in either system the sovereign choice of God and election is stressed and salvation in its whole course is the work of God. Opponents usually stress the superlapsarian system since it is the one which without explanation is more likely to conflict with man's natural feelings and impressions. It is also true that there are some things here which cannot be put into the time mold that these events are not in the divine mind as they are in ours by a succession of acts one after another but by one single act has God at once ordained all these things in the divine mind the plan is a unit each part of which is designed with reference to a state of facts which God intended should result from the other parts all of these decrees are eternal they have a logical but not a chronological relationship. Yet in order for us to reason intelligently about them, we must have a certain order of thought. We very naturally think of the gift of Christ in sanctification and glorification as following the decrees of the creation and the fall. In regard to the teaching of the Westminster Confession, Dr. Charles Hodge makes the following comment. "Twist the pro of that venerable body, the Westminster Assembly, was a zealous superlapsarian. The great majority of his members, however, were on the other side. The symbols of that assembly, while they clearly imply the infralapsarian view, were yet so framed as to avoid offense to those who adopted the superlapsarian theory. In the Westminster Confession it is said that God appointed the elect unto eternal life, and the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will, whereby He extendeth or withholdeth mercy as He pleases, for the glory of His sovereign power over His creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of His glorious justice. It is here taught that those whom God passes by are the rest of mankind. Not the rest of ideal or possible men, but the rest of those human beings who constitute mankind or the human race. In the second place, the passage quoted teaches that the non-elect are passed by and ordained to wrath for their sin. This implies that they were contemplated as sinful before the foreordination to judgment. The infolepsyrian view is still more obviously assumed in the answer to the 19th and 20th questions in the Shorter Catechism. It is there taught that all mankind by the fall lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse, and that God out of his mere good pleasure elected some, some of those under his wrath and curse, to everlasting life such has been the doctrine of the great body of the augustinians from the time of augustine to the present day 7 many are chosen when the doctrine of election is mentioned many people immediately assume that this means that the great majority of mankind will be lost but why should any one draw that conclusion god is free in election to choose as many as he pleases and we believe that he who is infinitely merciful and benevolent, and holy will elect the great majority to life. There is no good reason why he should be limited to only a few. We are told that Christ is to have the preeminence in all things, and we do not believe that the devil will be permitted to emerge victor, even in numbers. Our position in this respect has been very ably stated by Dr. W. G. T. Shedd in the following words. Let it be noticed that the question, how many are elected and how many are reprobated, has nothing to do with the question whether God may either elect or reprobate sinners. If it is intrinsically right for him either to elect or not to elect, either to save or not to save, free moral agents who by their own fault have plunged themselves into sin and ruin, numbers are of no account in establishing the righteousness and if it is intrinsically wrong, numbers are of no account to establish wrongness. Neither is there any necessity that the number of the elect should be small and that the non-elect great, or the converse. The election and the non-election and also the numbers of the elect and the non-elect are all alike in a matter of sovereignty in optional decision. At the same time, it relieves the solemnity and awfulness which overhangs the decree of reprobation, to remember that the scriptures teach that the number of the elect is much greater than that of the non-elect. The kingdom of the Redeemer in this fallen world is always described as far greater and grander than that of Satan. The operation of grace on earth is uniformly represented as mightier than that of sin, where sin abounded grace did much more abound. And the final number of the redeemed is said to be a number which no man can number, but that of the lost is not so magnified and emphasized. There is, however, a very common practice among Arminian writers to represent Calvinists as tending to consign to everlasting misery a large part of the human race whom they would admit to the enjoyment of heaven. It is a mere Caricature of Calvinism to represent it as based on the principle that the saved will be a mere handful or only a few brands plucked from the burning. When the Calvinist insists upon the doctrine of election, his emphasis is upon the fact that God deals personally with each individual soul instead of dealing merely with mankind in the mass. And this is a thing altogether apart from the relative proportion which shall exist between the saved and the lost. In answer to those who are inclined to say, according to this doctrine, God alone can save the soul, there will be few saved, we can reply that they might as well reason, since God alone can create stars, there can be but few stars. The objection is not well taken. The doctrine of election taken in itself tells us nothing about what the ultimate ratio shall be. The only limit set is that not all will be saved. So far as the principles of sovereignty and personal election are concerned, there is no reason why a Calvinist might not hold that all men will finally be saved, and some Calvinists actually held this view. Calvinism, wrote W.P. Patterson of the University of Edinburgh, is the only system which contains principles. In its doctrines of election and irresistible grace, that could make credible a theory of universal salvation. And Dr. S. G. Craig, editor of Christianity Today, and one of the outstanding men in the Presbyterian Church at the present time says, No doubt many Calvinists, like many not-Calvinists, have in obedience to the supposed teaching of the Scriptures held that few will be saved, but there is no good reason why Calvinists may not believe that the world will ultimately embrace the immensity greater portion of the human race. At any rate, our leading theologians, Charles Hodge, Robert L. Dabney, W.G.T. Shedd, and B. B. Warfield, have so held... As stated by Patterson, Calvinism, with its emphasis on the intimate personal relation between God and each individual soul, is the only system which would offer a logical basis for universalism if that view were not contradicted by the scriptures. And in contrast with this, must not the Arminian admit that on his principles only comparatively few actually are saved? He must admit that, that, so far in human history, the great proportion of adults, even in nominally Christian lands, exercising their free will with a graciously restored ability, have died without accepting Christ. And unless God is bringing the world to an appointed goal, what grounds are there to suppose that, so long as human nature remains as it is, the situation would be materially difficult, even if the world lasted a billion years. 8. A Redeemed World or Race Since it was the world or the race which fell in Adam, it was the world or the race which was redeemed by Christ. This however, does not mean that every individual will be saved, but that the race as a race will be saved. Jehovah is no mere tribal deity. But is the God of the whole earth, and the salvation which he had in view cannot be limited to that of a little select group or favored few. The gospel was not merely local news for a few villages in Palestine, but was a world message, and the abundant and continuous testimony of Scripture is that the kingdom of God is to fill the earth from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth Zechariah 9:10 Early in the Old Testament we have the promise that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Jehovah Numbers 14:21 And I there repeats the promise that all flesh shall see the glory of Jehovah chapter 40 verse 5 Israel was set as a light to the gentiles and For salvation unto the uttermost part of the earth, Isaiah 49.6, Acts 13.47. Joel made the clear declaration that in the coming days of blessing, the Spirit hitherto given only to Israel would be poured out upon the whole earth. And it shall come to pass afterward, said the Lord through his prophet, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, chapter 2, verse 28. And Peter applied that prophecy to the outpouring which was begun at Pentecost, Acts 2.16. Ezekiel gives us the picture of the increasing flow of the healing waters which issue from under the threshold of the temple, waters which were first only to the ankles, then to the knees, then to the loins, then a great river, waters which could not be passed through, chapter 47 verses 1 through 5. Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream taught this same truth. The king saw a great image with various parts of gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay. Then he saw a stone cut out without hands, which stone smote the image so that the gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay were carried away like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. These various elements represented great world empires which were to be broken in pieces and completely carried away while the stone cut out without hands represented a spiritual kingdom which God himself would set up and which would become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44 In the light of the New Testament we see that this kingdom was the one which Christ set up. In the vision which Daniel saw, the beast made war with the saints and prevailed against them for a time. But the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 22. Jeremiah gives the promise that the time is coming when it will no longer be necessary for a man to say to his brother or to his neighbor, Know Jehovah, for they shall all know him, from the least to the greatest of them. Chapter 31, verses 34. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possessions, said the psalmist. Chapter 2, verse 8. The last book of the Old Testament contains a promise that, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Jehovah of hosts. Malachi 1, verse 11. In the New Testament we find the same teaching. When the Lord does finally shower spiritual blessings on his people, the residue of men and all the Gentiles are to seek after the Lord. Acts 15:17. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2.2 2. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John 3.16-17 the Father hath sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. First John 4.14 Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.29 We have heard for ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John 4.42 I am the light of the world. John 8.12 I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. John 12.47 and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. John 12.32 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 The kingdom of heaven is said to be like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. Matthew 13.33 In the eleventh chapter of Romans we are told that the acceptance of the gospel by the Jews shall be as life from the dead and its spiritual blessings to the world. By their fall the gospel was given to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? The universal and complete dominion of Christ is taught again when we are told that he is to sit at the right hand of the Father until all enemies have been placed under his feet. Thus a strong emphasis is shown on the universality of Christ's work of redemption, and we are taught that our eyes are yet to behold a Christianized world, and since nothing is told us as to how long the earth shall continue after this goal is reached, possibly we may look forward to a great golden age of spiritual prosperity, continuing for centuries or even millenniums during which time Christianity shall be triumphant over all the earth, and during which time the great proportion even of adults. Shall be saved. It seems that the number of the redeemed shall then be swelled until it far surpasses that of the lost. We cannot, of course, fix even an approximate date for the end of the world. In several places in Scriptures, we are told that Christ is to return at the end of this present world order, that his coming will be personal, visible, and with great power and glory. That the general resurrection and the general judgment shall then take place, and that heaven and hell shall then be ushered in, in their fullness. But it has been expressly revealed that the time of our Lord's coming is among the secret things that belong unto the Lord our God. For of that day or that hour knoweth no one, not even the angels in heaven, neither the sun. But the Father only, said Jesus before his crucifixion. And after the resurrection, he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath set within his own authority. Acts 1.7 Hence, those who presume to tell us when the end of the world is coming are simply speaking without knowledge.